Good morning, church. Jeff, so good to have you here today and welcoming you back uh, to Calvary Monument. And thank you so much for sharing with us about hope today. Uh, For those of you that would like to visit uh, with Jeff a little bit longer, following service today in between service and ABF uh, hour, uh, Jeff will be up in Lefevre Hall. And then he'll be right here for ABF hour sharing a little bit more about Hope's ministry. And Sue. Sue as well. Sue will be here to visit with you as well. So Jeff and Sue both look forward to visiting with some of you between service. Thanks so much again. Appreciate it. Well, it's Palm Sunday. And I was greeting many of you this morning uh, out here in the foyer. And the thought occurred to me as I was saying happy Palm Sunday to you that perhaps a happy is not necessarily the, uh, the best word to use, uh, but perhaps appropriate as we consider the week before us. It is possible for us to know a lot about a person without truly knowing who they are, right? When I was a young child, I remember growing up, one of the traditions in our home on Thanksgiving was to go to my grandmother's house. And in the basement of, our ha- of her house sat a TV. And that's where all the children went so the adults could stay upstairs and have adult conversation. We would go and we'd surround the TV. Now, the TV had one of those dials next to it because it was on an antenna. And you'd turn the dial and listen to it click. Do you remember these? Click, 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 click as the antenna moved up. And I could not wait to get the Detroit Lions on the TV screen, because my all-time favorite football player as a child was a man named Barry Sanders. And I loved watching Barry Sanders carry the football. And I had every Barry Sanders football card that you could imagine from every sports card company, and no, I would not put them on the spokes of my tire. That's not how you treat a football card. But I collected them, and I made books of them, and I memorized the back of the card. And I knew how many yards rushing he had in his first season, in his second season. And I knew his full name, and I knew just about every detail you could possibly know. I had books about Barry Sanders, and back then, CDs or DVDs of Barry Sanders, or VHS tapes of Barry Sanders, and I knew... A lot about him, but you know what? Never met him. Never met him. Did not know who he really was as a person. And you know, as I think about this Palm Sunday and as I think about the account we're going to read today, it's a very interesting thought to think that the people of Israel were celebrating someone that they knew a lot about, but they did not truly know. And I want to encourage you this week as we move into Holy Week, we don't have much time here on earth. And it's important to make the most of the time that we have been given. And we do not want to miss out on our Messiah. And so as we step into this narrative this morning, we're going to huddle up around a few reflections. We're going to see an unbroken people. We're going to stand 
in the midst of a confused crowd. And we're going to sit in the presence of our weeping Messiah. Would you pray with me this morning as we open to Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active. We thank you that it is moving and working even now. We know that it is alive. And we know that your spirit is alive and he is present with us in this moment. Applying to each and every one of our hearts exactly what we need to hear. Father, we do not want to miss our Messiah. We don't want to just know a lot about Jesus. We truly want to know who Jesus really is. And we want that knowledge of him to change the patterns and the behaviors and the attitudes and the motivations of our hearts and our minds and our lives. We want to live differently. We want to reflect who he is in the world that you have planted us in. And so as we step into this narrative account of the triumphal entry today, I pray that Jesus' example would resonate with us. And that we would take it from this place and that we would use it in the spaces that you've planted us and that you would be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Luke 19, verses 28 to 44. And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near, he saw the city. He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you. When your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. 
The account begins with the words, and when he had said these things. And in order to grasp the meaning of the triumphal entry, we must first look back at the nature of the things that Jesus had said immediately prior to him going ahead into Jerusalem. In Luke 19, the realities of the opportunities presented in the Messiah are brought front and center. As this portion of Jesus' narrative begins, we meet at the beginning of chapter 19, this man we remember because we sing about him when we're little. His name was what? Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man. He was also the chief tax collector. And though he was short in stature, he was a man with rank and position. He would have organized and overseeing the other tax collectors in the region. He was well-known, and he would not have been very well-liked among the people. Not at all. Would even a fraud and a cheat like Zacchaeus be accepted to participate in the kingdom that Jesus was offering? Could salvation come to the household of one even as Zacchaeus. We know the end of the story, right? Zacchaeus, the son of Abraham, he comes to faith in Jesus in his home that day. And Jesus reminds the people of his mission in verse 10 of chapter 19 when he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save what? The lost. The salvation of Zacchaeus, it draws the attention of many in the crowd that had gathered to see Jesus as he was passing through Jericho. And so Jesus seizes the moment to share another parable with the people. And in this parable, the one that follows Zacchaeus's salvation, Jesus is regarded as a master who is going off to receive a kingdom. And here... In a subtle way, Jesus is preparing the people for the delay in the coming of his physical kingdom. Look at verse 11. While the people were listening to these things, Jesus proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And because they thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear, what? Immediately. What follows in the parable of the ten minas, an example of being faithful to recognize and maximize the time that we've been given here on earth. The servants in the parable are the disciples that Jesus would leave behind. Those who know Jesus are expected to multiply the gifts that they've been given while they await his return. The citizens in the parable who hated the king were those who would reject the Messiah, described in verse 27 of the parable as his enemies. And in the rejection of Jesus, they would face death in judgment and condemnation. Friends, we've been given a great gift in the Lamb of God. Have we recognized him? Will we maximize that gift with the time we've been given while we wait for the fullness of of his kingdom to be revealed. In the parable, Jesus is calling disciples, those who receive, recognize, and follow him as Messiah to faithful obedience while we wait for the fullness of the coming kingdom to be in our midst. And 
He is warning those who misunderstand, mischaracterize, misrepresent, or misinterpret his visitation as something other than the promised Messiah or suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And so with that in view, we step back into verse 28 at the beginning of the triumphal entry narrative and we find that the master is going away. He's moving on from Jerusalem or from Jericho. Moving on from Jericho toward Jerusalem. Now, the irony in this, Jericho, the first city to be conquered by ancient Israelites who were fighting to establish a kingdom. And now, Jesus is going up to Zion, Jerusalem, the hope of the nations. It is Lamb Selection Day. That's what day it is in the Passover week. The day that the lamb that's to be sacrificed for the Passover is chosen. God has chosen his lamb. And now he's orchestrating the events that would move his chosen lamb even nearer to his people. Luke draws our attention to Jesus' approach to Jerusalem. Of all of the synoptics, Luke is most concerned with Jesus' approach rather than his actual entrance. Jesus is drawing near, and this phrase is intentionally used three times in this passage. Luke wants us to see and to experience the nearness of Jesus to his people. Jesus is ascending the Mount of Olives. And if you're unfamiliar with the geography of Jerusalem and the region, the Mount of Olives is about 100 feet higher in elevation than Jerusalem. And so as he ascends the Mount of Olives, tones of Psalms 121 should be percolating in our imagination. I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come from. Help is here. Help is on the way. It's coming down from the Mount of Olives, but not everyone is ready to receive it. And as Jesus approaches the village and as he approaches Jerusalem, he has instructions for his disciples. Look again at verse 30. Go into the village in front of you. Whereupon entering, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it, bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you're doing so, say the Lord has need of it. This is the practice of Angaria. And it was not uncommon in that day. It was a custom where someone could impress into public service someone else's personal property to serve the common good. So I want you to think about all those Hollywood movies you've seen where the police officer's car runs out of gas or gets hit by another car or something happens and he runs to the innocent bystander on the motorcycle and shows him his badge and pulls him off and jumps on and drives off for the greater purposes of the common good to apprehend the person on the run. Similar here. With what's going on with the colt. Although I would imagine the colt's not as fast as the motorcycle. 
But an unbroken colt is a troublesome thing. I don't know if anyone in here has ever tried to break a horse that's never been mounted. This is a challenge, a difficult challenge. And an unbroken horse would be incredibly difficult to ride with just a cloak on its back. And not only does this colt happen to be unbroken, but at the time that it's found, it's also tied, bound up, shackled. You see, there is much about the colt that represents the very people Jesus was sent to save. Only by God's power does an unbroken colt never before mounted or ridden, stay calm and steady when taken from its owner, covered with cloaks, set with a rider, and sent through a frenzied and confused crowd. The providence of God is all over the details of Holy Week. Now, as Jesus is drawing near in verse 37, there's a crowd. Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. The people begin to sing to Jesus. They're singing from their ancient hymnal. They're singing words from Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus has captured and captivated their attention and his imagine, their imaginations with his wonder-working power. And as we were reminded in verse 11, they were anticipating that his kingdom was about to appear. They were looking for immediate satisfaction, an opportunity to receive a right now reward for their right alignment with this new and powerful political king who would set up this new and powerful empire. Ironic, not but 200 years earlier, Simon Maccabeus rode into the city, the same city, in triumph over Antiochus. Palm branches adorned the coins that represented the Maccabean revolt. Did you know that? The coins that were used by the Maccabeans, guess what they had on them? Palm branches. The people's cry of Hosanna. It was a cry for liberation. They longed to be free and clear from the Romans. Perhaps now, perhaps Jesus. Anybody know what Maccabeus' nickname was? Anybody know what they called him? The Hammer. Here he comes, the new hammer. That's what they wanted. That's what they were looking for. 
Ironic that their words are filled with echoes of Jesus' birth announcement made from the heavens to shepherds in the field. They cry out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. At the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, or at the beginning of his time on earth when he came as a baby, it was angels declaring his glory at the end of his life or near the end of his earthly ministry. His disciples and his followers, even while not fully understanding what was happening, were declaring his glory. From beginning to end, God is fully glorified in the work and ministry of Jesus. Present in this gathered crowd are a group of people we call the religious leaders. Pharisees, Sadducees, zealots, scribes. They're unsettled about how Jesus' disciples are interpreting this event. It was the Pharisees who enjoyed their place of prominence and privilege at the expense of the people they lorded over. Their houses were built by unjust gain. They had schemed in their approach to building the Israelite religion, Judaism. They had schemed to keep the people enslaved to the law and the temple to support and to justify their lavish lifestyles. They had acted as the Babylonians in the time of Habakkuk, holding in captivity the people of Israel. Jesus' words in response to their chastisement pulls from Habakkuk's prophecy. Verse 40, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. But what is it about the stones? How did stones make their way into this narrative? Well, this whole region was known for its stones. And if you've ever seen pictures of Mount Olives overlooking uh, from, from the Mount of Olives, looking into Jerusalem, you see large stones scattered all over the landscape. And stones play an interesting part of Israel's narrative history. Reflect back on the first crossing of the Jordan River. You remember what happened when they got to the other side of the Jordan? There was a man who was leading them. His name was Joshua. And what did Jesus or what did God ask Joshua to do on the other side of the river? Put up a monument. An Ebenezer. A memorial. Stones. Rocks that would cry out or testify to God's covenant faithfulness. His power and his might to save his people from their enemies. That first Jordan River crossing, guess when it happened? All the way back in Joshua's day. It happened on the 10th day of Nisan. Palm Sunday takes place on the 10th day of Nisan. The religious leaders are angry that people are worshiping Jesus as Messiah. These religious leaders, these builders and architects of modern Judaism, 
in Jesus' day. But the stone that the builders were rejecting was establishing himself as the chief cornerstone. And friends, on the Ebenezer of Jesus, the church would be established. And had the people had been silent that day, God still would have been faithful to save his people. The rock, Jesus, and the rocks are testimonies to us that we serve a God who always keeps his promises. But then, in the midst of the narrative, our weeping Messiah. Jesus continues his forward movement towards the city of Jerusalem. And for the third time in the narrative, we're told he drew near. The incarnational aspect or drawing near aspect of Jesus' ministry is all over the Palm Sunday account. Now we are told as he begins to descend the Mount of Olives that he sees the city. And I want us to truly step into these very real and human emotions of Jesus in this moment. In verse 41 it says, When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. At the sight of Zion, he begins to weep. He's overcome with emotion for his people. Jesus truly wanted to be their Messiah. But he needed to be their Messiah on the terms of the Father. Not on the terms of the people. The people were celebrating, but they were not understanding. Matthew's account gives us even further insight to this moment. Matthew 23, verses 37 to 39. Oh, Jerusalem, this is Jesus weeping. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who were sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would have none of it. Jesus quotes directly from King David in verse 39, but echoes of David's despair actually begin in verse 37. Did you see it? Do you see it? In 2 Samuel, David's son Absalom is killed while leading a coup against his father. And as much as David wanted to defeat Absalom in battle, he was clear to his military generals that he did not want to see Absalom killed. And when the message is brought back to David that his son is dead, the messenger is actually terrified to deliver the message because he's afraid how David will respond. And David's response in that moment is one of the most desperate cries in all of the Bible. Some of you remember it well. The Bible tells us he was stunned. He was shocked to his core. He was heartbroken. He goes up to this room over the gate of the city and he begins to cry out, Oh my son, Absalom, my dear, dear son, Absalom. Why not me rather than you, my death and not yours? Oh, Absalom, my dear, dear son. 
His brokenness spills over into chapter 19 of 2 Samuel where he continues to weep and lament even in the presence of his own army. And here we are back on the Mount of Olives as Jesus descends and draws near to the city echoes of King David's cry, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem. And the rhetorical symmetry is unmistakable. Absalom, my father is peace. Jerusalem, the city of peace. Jesus, the prince of peace. Verse 42, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Absalom knew no peace. He rejected the anointed of God. He rejected his own father, King David. The city of Jerusalem, the people of Israel knew no peace as they rejected their Messiah. Jesus is weeping. Because in the midst of all this celebration, as he rides into Jerusalem, he wants them to know and understand and experience the very thing that they're missing out on. True shalom. Real peace. It's beautiful what he does in verses 42 to 45. Absolutely beautiful. He speaks to the city of Jerusalem like a father would speak to his own child or a brother to his own brother. His words are intentionally and unmistakably Personal. He's personifying the city 15 times. 15 times that personal pronoun, you, your. He's heartbroken. Jesus knows the utter destruction that will soon come upon his people as their rejection will soon become a public declaration of not our king, not our Messiah. You see, the people thought that peace would come through political power. If we could just get the right guy in office. It's not peace. They missed out on one of the hallmarks of Jesus' ministry. Real peace only comes by knowing God through Jesus. Amen? Thinking they knew what peace was and knew, knew peace and that they really wanted peace and they knew what it would take to get peace. They were blind to the very presence of the Prince of Peace who had drawn so near to them. Even inviting them to participate in his kingdom, offering them the opportunity of eternal, everlasting peace. And it wasn't just that they would miss out on true peace, but as a result, Jesus said they would suffer and their children would suffer and their enemies would increase in number and success. And I would ask us today, if this made Jesus weep, 
2,000 years ago. And Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Could it also be the stuff that may make him weep today? Don't miss out on Jesus, the Prince of Peace. We do not have much time here on earth. In the span of history, our lives are but a vapor. Today's the day, friends. If you've never known God through Jesus, if you've never come to a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then today is the day. And what a day it would be. Now our elders are going to move to the back. They're going to come down. We're going to prepare appropriately to celebrate communion together. And what an appropriate day for us to do this on the day that the lamb would be selected for sacrifice. On that very same day that represents today, we're going to remember and proclaim his ultimate sacrifice on the cross. And I would ask today, as our elders come, when they're ready, if you have not come to the Father through Christ, that you do that right now before we receive communion. Let Palm Sunday of 2022 be the day that you gave your life over to Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. You can do that today. You can receive Him as your Lord and Savior even now. You can know your true salvation today because of who Jesus is.